Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and I thank you so much for joining us. Uh, as we uh, let you know where we're coming from, when we're coming, and how we're coming to you, I will tell you that later because I don't want to waste any time on today's program. I want to jump right into our interview with our very special guest, and uh, I'm, I'm excited about this. But I'm also a little concerned about getting the pronunciation correctly, so I'm going to take a shot, and I will be corrected by my guest who is joining us. She's the author of Sovereign Self, Claim Your Inner Joy and Freedom with the Empowering Wisdom of the Vedas, Upanishads, and the Bhagavad Gita. Acharya Shunya, thank you so much for joining us here on the program, and thank you for that. I appreciate it because... I have to tell you just briefly uh, before you make your first comments that that is your name. And when people talk to you, they need to say your name. It's a sign of, in my opinion, of respect. And I want to show utter respect to you and the work that you do. Uh, so thank you for being with us. Thank you, Richard. And spontaneously, your soul knew my name. And I and I'm so glad I'm returning to your show with my second book. And I have these wonderful memories of having this high vibration charged conversation. So really looking forward to it. I am very excited to have you here because this is uh, an area that I have um, I, I was introduced to probably at the age of 17 through autobiography of a yogi. Uh, introduced to the Gita, the Upanishads, many of the other ancient wisdom teachings that that uh, are out there, whether they come from India or other parts of the world, uh, or maybe not of this world, and um, it's it it's it's like it's not something that I follow, shall we say, uh, religiously, but it sure warms my heart when I come across and am connected with people and experiences that. I guess the only way I can explain this is um, that touch upon this this Eastern mysticism and spiritualism uh, insights and so forth and wisdom uh, that has been here on this planet and in the ethers, if you will, for thousands and thousands of years. You, Precisely. your yeah. lineage. Your lineage in particular is a minimum of 2,000 years old, and you happen to be one of the first, if not the first, uh, if I'm understanding, uh, female head of your particular lineage. Share with our listeners what that lineage is and why is it important that you are the first female head? For a long time, mystical knowledge, as you put it, religion is for the masses, but mystical awakening knowledge is for seekers. And it is handed out with responsibility by one master to a future master or a genuine seeker. And to do that, lineages cropped up like these were small bodies of blood-related or wisdom-related people. And these lineages were everywhere, you know, within Native American traditions, Chinese or Japanese and in India. And I come from one such lineage from Ayodhya, a holy city in Northern India. And uh, we've been doing this work for the longest time. And I have lineage teachers who have authored books in 
Sanskrit. They have held, they've had wisdom schools that are talked about in other scriptures. And my own grandfather and great grandfather and father are renowned in India. So, but I was only nine when I started studying with my grandfather, but the Vedas, the Bhagavad Gita, the Upanishads, they are not dogma, they are universal. And interestingly, the Vedas were also authored not just by male seers, but by female seers too. They were known as rishis and rishikas. So what my family did is specifically my great grandfather and grandfather were, they said, you know what? We're done with any kind of non-progressive ideals that have steeped into India, the regressive patriarchal traditions that came later on. And they wanted to go back to the pristine, original, progressive, out-of-the-box thinking, where in Bhagavad Gita, Lord Krishna says, I live in male, female, and mixed body types. So he was accepting the whole homo, you know, um, sexual a body type that's that's rejected by the world and he was saying i the great consciousness dwell in all beings he even said krishna the the, the vedic god says i dwell in the butcher i dwell in the pandit i dwell in the scholar equally so he was bringing everything together my my great grandfather grandfather opened up the lineage to women scholars to people of every caste india was divided up into higher caste and lower caste they opened it up to truth seeking hearts the first um, formal transgender student came to our lineage so by the time i was born the lineage doors were open and my grandfather said to me you will be that person and i didn't know what that meant and I'm still trying to find out, Richard. Mm. Still trying to find out. You know, one of the other aspects that you described there as far as the acceptance of all people, regardless of their, uh, as the phrase goes, sexual orientation, <clears throat> it took me a long time to really uh, grasp this, but I had to go back to my, uh, it was either grade school or high school biology class, and what I remembered, and then I had to Google it and to do some research on it, uh, was that um, we are all, when we come into this world, we are female. When the two cells, if you will, the sperm and the egg are united and they begin to divide and subdivide and so forth and create the embryo, it is initially female. So every human being who has ever existed started out as a female. And then, whether it be supernatural, spiritual, mystical, um, we then uh, take on the respective gender that we have chosen to for this lifetime. Now, I don't fully understand the, the, the aspects of how a person, an, an, ent an entity coming into body would choose a body that doesn't fit, a gender that doesn't fit them in that particular lifetime, why they wouldn't choose the body type, the, the, the gender that they wanted, and then they grow up, and here we are in the 21st century, and we have people who are struggling with the issues of this issue of uh, transgender, and, uh, you know, they're in a male body, but they feel female, and vice versa, and, and all of those kinds of things. And, and those folks now in this 21st century, they're the ones that are on the, on the cusp of, 
you know, alienation, you know, uh, being minimalized. And that's really unfortunate. Uh, and I've had people in studio before the, the <laughs> before the virus uh, con- in conversation. And I and of course, they're 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 usually ones that were born in this country. And I say, well, first of all, let me just say that you are human. And that's usually a question. You are human, right? They say, yes. I said, then you belong. And being born in this country, I say, and you're an American, right? I say, yes, they are. Then you belong. End of story, period. No more conversation. You belong. You are part of our community. And anybody who comes along and tells you otherwise is wrong, is lying. It sounds to me like the ancient wisdom teachings that you speak of are basically coming from that perspective. If you are in a human body and you are here, you belong, period. There is no more discussion. Is, is that kind of what I'm hearing? Yeah, there's like this beautiful line which says, the self is the same in all, no matter what the body type. And the self assumes the different body types. And whatever be the karmic journey, whatever be the cutting edge understanding of different body types that we have to take by embodying it from inside out, I have to say that the Vedas showed this universal love that we all talk about and this universal spirit of accommodation. And that was very, for being a, you know, I was born in the 1960s in India and I was being exposed to modern teachings and whatnot. And I was really thrilled to find this uh, like deep-seated oneness, non-duality, equality that transcends form and name and culture. And, and these teachings that I talk about in my books and in my classes, you know, they're not, they, they, they belong, very small percentage of Hindus also delve into it. You really need a superior mind and a desire for a transcendental consciousness to delve into them, but they became my passion. And I became somewhat of a bookworm for a long time and a contemplative meditative person just sitting in my backyard. But then this knowledge changed my life. And now I've been on the world stage for some time. Mm. It's amazing. Now, in your youth, when you came into this world and as you were growing up, um, can you tell me what philosophy, as I like to use the term, what philosophy you were raised in? It is known, it is from the Vedas, it is known as Advaita, which literally means not to. That even though you see two or more things, there is not more things. There is no many things. There is a common substance, a common center to all things and beings. And that is known as Atma or the boundless one. In English, I call it the self. So um, that's that's the philosophy I grew up with. So we learn to respect and love and be dharmic, Mm -hmm. ethical, be dharmic to everything that we encountered, including some difficult people or horrible people. That didn't mean we became... Uh, push, you know, we were we were um, allowing people to walk all over us. We had to have boundaries, but at the end of the day, we were told or guided not to be bitter, mm. but to understand that there is no evil. There is only spiritual ignorance, and that person doesn't know better. Yeah. And so, 
So grew up with this type of philosophy, which is the true Hindu deepest, highest philosophy enshrined in the Bhagavad Gita. Mm. We're going to jump into discussion about your book here in just a moment, but what you just said was rather interesting for me because I grew up, of course, born and raised Catholic, a Western rite of the Catholic Church. I make that delineation because when I married my first wife, she was of the Eastern rite of the Catholic Church, Byzantine Catholic. And um, I never became an ex-Catholic. I am not a practicing Catholic, mind you, but I never found anything abhorrent about the church, certain aspects within it uh, have a problem with that we've seen in the news. But as far as as far as the ritual, the tradition, and the ceremony, I still hold all of that very near and dear to my heart. And <clears throat> one of the things my mother did when I was sixteen, uh, I would uh, deliver the morning newspaper here in Phoenix, Arizona, where I was born and raised. And uh, I'd come home and I'd go back to bed on a Sunday morning and she'd get me up at nine saying, hey, it's time to get ready to go to mass. And I would pull myself out of bed. Well, one morning I didn't want to pull myself out of bed. And she says, "Okay." Years later, I asked her, why did you do that? She says, I didn't want you to push away from the church, which I've never done. Um, But I have found that uh, it alone does not serve me. And so I have searched and looked for many different philosophies out there. I became a Baha'i for a year and a half um, and love many of the sayings of Baha'u'llah who says, if you have, uh, if you have uh, accepted one of the masters, the, the messengers of God, you have accepted them all. If you reject one of the messengers of God, you've rejected them all. Well, one of the things I learned when I was working for a Christian radio station uh, was that I was very curious, and the answers I was getting just didn't make any sense to me. Uh, And then when one of the big figures here in in the United States in televangelism, uh, who was just castigating everybody who didn't believe the way he thought they should and living the way they thought they should, when he passed on, um, the only thing I could think of at the time was, well, at least now he knows the truth. Now he knows the truth and that he in that in that lifetime was really being unfair to a lot of his fellow human beings. And that's one of the things that I find so wonderful about some of these ancient wisdom teachings is the fact that, you know, I I know enough about uh, Hinduism and the Eastern religions. There's the caste system. Well, many people think, oh, well, we, we don't have the caste system here in the United States. Ah, but we do. And it's based upon what you believe. It's based upon your political affiliation. It's based upon your economic status. It's based upon your education. So we have multiple caste systems. And boy, you can wind up at the bottom of the totem pole real quick. If you're not making enough money, you don't have a good enough education, you're not believing in the right things, and you're not following the right people in politics. And it's really, really a sad thing. And so we we here have a lot to overcome. Does... Do people do the people in India uh, have this same issue? Is is, is the caste system uh, waning away, or is it alive and well? So, what's beautiful is that Hinduism, which is like one of the religions apart from Sikhism, Jainism, Buddhism, that was inspired by the Vedas, but maximally the Hindu religion does not have a caste system because Hindu text is the Bhagavad Gita, which preaches equality. 
But caste system is a social evil that creeps up in ignorant human societies, whether it's in the east or the west, north or the south. Mm -hmm. So it crept up in India and it got co-merged with Hinduism. But if you look at the Muslim society and the Christian society in India, they too have caste. So as you said, in America too. But then unfortunately, Hinduism got a lot of bad press that Hindu and the caste system. And currently, the there is the popular Hinduism or the dogmatic Hinduism, which is like an incrustation on the original prestige philosophy of non-duality, equality, and oneness, and God not being in an idol, but being a formless truth that's all pervading. So what I took upon myself was to separate out the two and not throw the baby with the bathwater and say, wait here. These are some social incrustations that have come upon time and caste and class consciousness, racial division, color-based um, abuse, all of these creep up in societies. But I did not have to, for example, Richard, look elsewhere and i'm not saying it from a place of vanity or anything i i would have looked elsewhere because i'm a big skeptic you know and i don't buy anything just because i was born into it mm -hmm. but i did find the vedas the bhagavad gita and upanishads deeply expansive and fulfilling my need to be a evolved being where i had to move away was from the popular ritualistic incrustations that had come in the last you know, thousand years or so. And I'm like, that's not me. But I, so even in my book, I talk about the original Hinduism or the original Vedic Bhagavad Gita based teachings. And I think even in Christianity, there are the mystical teachings, mm -hmm. which are universal and very non-dual. And then there is the religion, yeah. which then says us and them. And so, so be it. So that's the way it is. But it, but, but the religion itself encourages us in India, in the Hinduism especially, encourages us to step beyond these superficial differences and embody dharma, a conscious way of living and acting. How many do it is a question mark, but a critical number of people do find inspiration. And then Richard, some people will use even the highest philosophy and convert it into a dogma and a way of life and a cult, mm. and you can't stop them. No, they're everywhere. They are. They are indeed. Yeah. I I just I am in awe of uh, those who who penned the, what I again what I refer to as ancient wisdom teachings, and and as I get older. Many of the uh, uh, works that I have read that have been written in the last century or so become sort of become ancient wisdom teachings because I'm getting older and they're getting older. And and uh, but they were very profound. And I, I I'm astounded sometimes when I look back at the uh, the, the books that I have read. I, I never really cared much for reading as a kid growing up because of my vision. I was legally blind uh, back uh, until I was 36 and I just, it was very frustrating for me, uh, but yet at the same time, I was still able to do that through uh, recorded uh, books that were not, they weren't audibles then. I was, I, I, like the, I like to say this phrase, 
I was listening to Audible books before Audible books were cool, okay? <laughs> uh, they were recording books for the blind and visually impaired going back decades. And um, I actually listened to Autobiography of a Yogi on a record, a disc mm. that played uh, at one and seven-eighths revolutions per minute. That's one slow album, let me tell you. Uh, and uh, I have it on my phone. And I have to say I was gratified to, at one level when after Steve Jobs, who was the founder of Apple, uh, passed away, they said there was one book and one book only on his phone. And that was Autobiography of a Yogi. And I was, I was, uh, I was like stunned in one sense. Here's this really white guy. I mean, you know, he was very pale in his in his skin tone, who who uh, was was doing what he was doing, and yet obviously embraced that particular philosophy, which really encompasses many. Uh, one of my favorite quotes from the book uh, is uh, from Teresa of Avila, who says that God is amongst the pots and the pans. So God is. Everywhere. And that's one of the things I love about this program. Uh, the universe, oh God, if you will, asks the questions, hey, I'm just along for the ride. I'm just a vehicle, okay? I'm a mouthpiece is what I am. And I want to talk about sovereign self. Claim your inner joy and freedom with empowering wisdom of the Vedas, Upanishads, and Bhagavad Gita. From the standpoint, from the standpoint, Acharya, when we talk at the beginning of every program, I didn't do that this time because I wanted to jump right in. We talk about the 2020s, the decade of perfect vision. When I speak of perfect vision, I'm talking about the perfect inner vision and encouraging people to go within, to find that still, peaceful, calm place where they can relax, rejuvenate, recenter and refocus where they can listen to that still small voice and you talk about that in terms of accessing our spiritual birthright of freedom wholeness and joy through the uh, perennial wisdom of yoga of yoga's ancient spiritual texts from your perspective and if i am correct as a hindu how important and i i, I want to broaden that to, to being a spiritual being how important is, from your perspective, as a teacher, as a practitioner, as a devotee, what have you, how important is that inner life going within? There is no other life. And if we don't have an inner life, then it's like electricity thinking I'm bulb, ocean thinking I'm a glass of water we become diminished and reduced and superficialized. It is the inner life that gives meaning to the outer life. And the discovery of the inner life is a privilege of the human being because we are a self-aware animal. Like other animals, we need food, we need sex, we need sleep. This we share in common with everything that's walking around or flying. But the need to know ourselves, to connect with it, to bring something from that into our outer world that we share in common with other beings is our privilege and our responsibility. 
And yoga, which literally means union in Sanskrit, is a path, a practice, a way of life, an attitude, a behavior, a quest uh, for constantly being in union with that inner life while playing roles in the outer life. And if we don't have this yoga or union with the inner life, there is a chance that we will become lost in our outer life, its labels, titles, and its ups and downs. For example, if I don't have an inner life as a boundless sovereign being who's complete unto myself, what happens with this podcast, if I stutter or stumble, whether more people listen to it, rate it or review it, has a potential to mar my, you know, my state of being, my peace, my happiness. Mm -hmm. But if I'm anchored in myself, and so are you, we are freed up then to play the roles of host and guest, uh, podcast host and podcast guest, have a blast, and then go to bed without a single thought or worry, because we go back, we came from our inner being, we surfaced and played roles, we went back to our inner being. So yoga is almost like necessary to, to even play the roles of moms and dads and employees and podcasters and spiritual teachers. Otherwise, it's exhausting. And then and when people don't have that inner life, they you know, they they become quite desperate and and work too hard for crumbs of approval. And we start performing and become estranged from our being. And finally, if we don't have books like the ones I have written, which take some time to contemplate and yearn and search for the inner being, it's not a quick trip. But if some teachers don't sit down and do that deeper work and give that deeper path, Chances are that when the yearning does arise for the inner self, we might get caught up in a fad, a spiritual fad, or a trend, or a cult, and give away our power to the next pop teacher, or guru, or fashionable parade in spirituality. But the inner self has nothing to do with what the outer being looks like, wears, or trends. It's something very deep, mystical. It needs time and the work of the Vedas, and that's the work I have done, mm -hmm. is I've not given structure to what it looks like, but I have tried to activate the intuition of what it looks like when your inner life is awake amidst difficult relationships or a divorce that's going on or, you know, the loss of a loved one through death. If you have an inner life, what does it look like? And it has nothing to do with being, being a Hindu. You could be a Hindu, an atheist, an agnostic, a Buddhist, because the inner life is beyond, you know, religion ends. It's beyond those labels. Spirituality begins. Yeah. 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 You are also a, a, a teacher, if you will, uh, or sort of a master of uh, uh, the, uh, uh, if I pronounce this correctly, Adyavita. Ayurveda. Ayurveda. Yes. Well, no, no. Not, yes, Ayurveda, but also of the non-dualism. Advaita. Advaita. Yes, you got it. Advaita. Yes. And mm -hmm. I, no, I, of course, read about it in many other books, including autobiography. Mm -hmm. But um, in the last few years, I have had a big struggle with this whole concept of, of dualism and, and that I was really uh, getting very tired 
of this dualistic concept that we live in in this in this human existence in the outer world. So I came up with this analogy. Um, you have the micro and the macrocosmos. And when we, let's say, look through the Hubble telescope, for example, people just recently saw Saturn and Jupiter, um, you know, what appeared to be like an eighth of an inch apart from one another as we looked up in the sky. I was told that that eighth of an inch from our perspective is actually 400 million miles. Be that as it may, you look through the Hubble telescope and you see all of these different things happening. You see supernovas exploding. You see meteors and and comets and asteroids and col this collision and that and and the spinning and the turning and the bumping and the grinding and all of this kind of stuff and our response is ooh wow oh man that's look at that wow there is no judgment there there is just awe now i have always believed even as a child that the microcosmos under an electron microscope for example is a mirror of the macrocosmos. Uh, and, and uh, you know, because I was taught that you had these uh, electrons, protons, neutrons, uh, atoms, and so forth, and everything is spinning. Everything is rotating. Everything is moving. And the same kinds of things are happening, whether it's cells dividing, whether it's things bumping into one another and absorbing one over another, and on and on and on and on. And again, we just kind of look at that in awe. But then when we look at what I've termed the mid-crow, Macro, micro, micro. The micro, which is where we live in this human world, in the outer world, there is no awe. There is either fear or love or joy. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. If you look out at the macrocosmos and it just is what it is, it's just doing what it's doing. It has no judgment on itself. It's just doing what it's doing. And you do the same thing with the micro or the microcosmos. Why can't you do the same thing with the mid-crow, where we live? Why can't we do the same thing? It, it just is what it is. I got hit by a car. There's no judgment there. It just is what it is. Uh, I just got a bonus check uh, in the mail. It just is what it is. There's no joy there. It, it, it just is what it is. And I'm not saying that we should not uh, um, uh, experience our emotions but it seems as though because we pass judgment, because we believe that this is a plus and minus universe in our, at our level here, that we get trapped in the emotions of either bliss, joy, or fear, uh, frustration, anger, and so on and so forth. Talk to us about the teachings of non-dualism from, from your perspective and how you see the universe, and something tells me that the inner life is a big part of this. Well, first I want to say that you made some very deep, you shared some deep insights. That was beautiful. And how well put that while we are in state of awe with the micro and macro universe, um, in our daily life, we are in the state of ugh and numbness or exaggerated happiness, but it's short-lived and then exaggerated sorrow that kind of takes us down a slippery slope. So it's, it's a weird place to be at. The Vedas, the Vedic wisdom uh, have offered us some insights into how these are all levels of reality, but they may not be the ultimate reality. 
So they say that, um, and it's interesting because I have come across passages which say that when you enter your inner being, like at the cellular level, at the body level, um, and say you were to become that subtle, this because distance is relative, right? So mm -hmm. the spatial distance between one electron and another electron is galactic miles. So we think they're just two particles, but these are, <laughs> you'll find the whole universe within you. Yeah. And we have images of a, a yogi meditating and finding the whole universe inside them. So what's outside is inside, what's inside, what's outside. Then what the hell is this? Where we're stuck, you know? And so here we are told, yes. So this is where you need to become more of a witness known as a Sakshi. So there is an actor part of our mind, and then there is a witnessing part of our mind. So the witnessing part of our mind, so the witnessing part of me has to right now witness the actor part of me, which is acting on the world stage, being a spiritual teacher, an author, a podcaster, and having a very worldly identity. And the more I just witness without judgment, like you said, you know, superimposing, this will work for me, so I'm going to be happy. This doesn't work my way, so I'm going to be unhappy and be a victim. So if I'm not going to do that, if I just step back and be more as a sakshi or a witnessing awareness, what the Vedas promises that this world, how it appears, will change. And the enemy who you want to just kill <laughs> may appear as a friend showing you something you need to know. And your bestie with whom you gossip and lament will appear as a dark force that is keeping you stuck in your comfort zone. And the death and the loss that you thought unmade you actually made you. Because because of the death and that loss and that grief, you found a higher passage of your consciousness. So this world, if you have very gross vision, appears very gross. You pay your bills, you drink your OJ in the morning, you know, you drive to work, you gossip about your boss behind his back, you, you know, you, you dream for things, but you age and then you die. That's a very basic life. But if you become more of a witness and you take the sacred instruction or listen to these sacred insights and these chants, they shall awaken mystical mystical awareness within you, your ability to find the macro and the macro, micro and the macro will meet you right here in the world. And I'll tell you this, Richard, I would be sitting in my backyard while my son would be doing his homework or playing with the dog. And I would just be in my swing, watching my breath and inwards, and the whole world will stop. And I would have a vision of this complete oneness and beauty. So I've had these moments, and though I don't earn my bread and butter by showing off how I had those moments, you know, but just something in me wanted to share this, that I live in this very typical world, but I don't behave typically in it. Mm. And when everybody's angry with someone, I'm able to find a compassionate bone within me. Ha <laughs> ha. And when everybody's scared of someone, I'm able to find a strong, fearless 
part in me. Mm -hmm. So this world is the training ground of souls. That's very clear. And we are lucky if we hear podcasts like this or read books or, you know, study the Vedas or sacred mystical, you know, teachings of various traditions, not just the Vedas, which talk about enlightened awareness. Mm -hmm. And then the mid, the mid area of our being. So the one last thing I'll say is the Vedas say that just like you wake up in the dream where you were really scared and you go, oh, that was just a dream. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There is one more waking you have to do from your waking dream, the sleepwalking waking time mm -hmm. where we meet our relatives and we play these pithy roles. I'm a mom, I'm a ballerina, I'm the president of the country. <laughs> and then when you wake up, you realize I was never born. I never died. This was a giant Leela or a big illusion. And I am the pure spirit and I dwell everywhere and in everything. And that moment is called Mukti, freedom or moksha. So that's that's something that's waiting for us yeah. to to awaken. Yeah. The reality of all realities is there is no death. There is only transformation. Only transformation. Only transformation. Exactly. Yeah. It, it brings to mind uh, a four steps that I went through. And this is these are four steps I could have gone through with even the bullies uh, in school when I was going to school. Uh, some 40 or 50 years ago. Um, the first, the, and this is something I discovered over the last four, five, six years. The first was, thank you, teacher, for teaching me how not to be. That was the first one. And it was hard to say thank you, teacher, because of my judgment on that person. Mm -hmm. Then I went from that to uh, I forgive you, but more importantly, I forgive myself for allowing myself to get drawn into this quagmire. The third step was, what is it that you are so afraid of that makes you be this way? And one of my guests not long ago shared with me the fourth step. And it is one that you have to mean it. It has to come from the heart. It has to come from every subatomic particle of your being. Three simple words in the fourth step. To this, let's just say this individual, this person, maybe this group of people. And those three simple words are, I love you. And those four steps, as I said, it took me a couple of, uh, a couple of years to work through them. And then, of course, I acquired the fourth step from, from one of my other guests. Uh, and we were talking just about that, bullies. And uh, they said that when you say that to a bully, after they've done or said whatever it is they're going to say, they don't know what to do with that. They don't. They don't have a clue as to how to handle that. And it kind of shuts them down. Because someone has just said, I love you. What the heck? I just called them all every other kind of name. I just punched them in the face. I did this, that, or the other thing. And, I, I, and, and their computer can't handle it and sort of, sort of goes into overdrive, so to speak. And I think that that's, that's really, uh, uh, I think, from my perspective, uh, something that I think that can work for folks. I wanted to ask you, as we jump into 
sovereign self, claim your inner joy and freedom with the empowering wisdom of the Vedas, Upanishads, and the Bhagavad Gita. I know what sovereignty is in the Western context. Here in the United States, people are exercising their sovereignty by not wearing a mask, by not washing their hands, by not stepping back six feet. Because they are sovereign individuals, they have the constitutional right to do whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, to whomever they want. I don't think that's the kind of sovereignty you are speaking of in sovereign, sovereign self, is it? What is your definition in sovereign self of sovereignty? Thank you for asking that question and for pointing that out. And it's, it's interesting that my book comes out at a time when... Um, with everything else, sovereignty too has become all about the ego. And in fact, the sovereign self is about when the ego surrenders and dissolves and there is a sovereignty that is intact in our soul. And in it is a built-in construct. It's a win-win sovereignty. It, it, is, it comes with ethics or dharma. It cannot be my win or my power or my sovereign right over yours. It will somehow help the person who's connected with their sovereign being connect with a greater planetary consciousness, connect with greater sense of equality, harmony, oneness, and from that will arise self-governance, what to say, what not to do, how to behave so that I can be of service and I can be of value because I understand of incredible value that I am to myself. So in short, the sovereign self is not teaching the ego how to be more egotistic. <laughs> and by the way, Richard, in case you've noticed that there's a whole stream of books and writers which are pretty much talking about being rebels and you know and not following rules mm -hmm. and and saying it like it is but and it sounds real fun and sometimes i read those fun blogs or memes on social media too but true sovereignty comes when we live and cooperate in the world, in the family, in a community, and then even within ourselves, do our senses listen to us? Do our thoughts and feelings are under the mastery of the mind, of the soul, or do they just do their own thing? Mm. Because then we are split up inside ourselves and we're not able to achieve the goals we were meant to achieve or live the life we were meant to achieve. So in summary, number one, Sovereign self talks about how to be the sovereign master of your own mind and body so that you are not split up inside you. And number two, sovereign self helps you become a master of your life and, uh, and of service through dharma in this planet by becoming connected to a sovereign spiritual truth that is common to all beings. So it's a spiritual state of sovereignty. It is mm -hmm. kind. It is gentle. It is nonviolent, yet it is effective, and it is fearless. That's what I would say. I have heard in this country people, as I said earlier, uh, speak of their constitutional right, their First Amendment right, and that uh, they are not going to give that up. And I took a look at that phrasing, and I thought, you've got it backwards. This isn't about giving up anything. I wear a mask. 
I stay six feet apart. I try to sanitize my hands as often as I can and so forth. But I'm not giving up my individual constitutional rights. I'm exercising them. Because in our founding documents, it talks about uh, promoting the general welfare and preserving the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. And that, to me, is more important than the self in, the, in this First Amendment uh, to our Constitution context. Uh, that I want to see everybody survive this. And sadly, uh, as of our conversation... 320,000 human beings no longer exist on this planet here in the United States. 320,000. And it's just one of the saddest things that I, 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 I can honestly say I just, I just don't get it. These are not numbers. 320,000 human beings, individuals uh, who were parts of families and had friends and parents and children and on and on and on. They had lives. And I'm sure that you have had in India, as well as other parts of the world, uh, many, many deaths due to this virus, whether the individuals had underlying conditions or not. Some people died from the virus because their immune systems were so compromised. Um when we talk about this aspect of sovereignty uh, and that it's more of a selfless act, if you will, of being sovereign, being a sovereign person, a sovereign self, as your book title talks about, how do we go about sharing that aspect with those who are, I mean, can we even share that aspect with those who are not in that space, not even close to it. And they're, they're at the other side of ego-centered sovereignty. Uh, is, is there a way or do we have to do, as Gandhi said, be the change you want to see? I have two answers. A hypothetical answer is that, yes, we can take the gospel of the light so to say, of or of truth and dharma and higher consciousness to all beings. And isn't that what you're doing? Day after day, for so many years now, you hold vigil on your podcast. And I write books uh, that with, 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 a, with, with fierceness and truth and commitment and not skipping things and not, not making irresponsible comments that would put me on top of the bestseller list, whether it's the truth or not, because I'm hoping that one day this book will land in the hands of the people who really need it, who are stuck in darkness and who are hurting themselves and hurting others on the planet. However, uh, however, there are other teachings in the Vedas also which say that you need a certain qualified mind to even appreciate these readings or these teachings because People have to be ready to assimilate them and achieve them because the ego is going to quickly, you know, quickly reject it, not just because it's coming from a different spiritual tradition or it's being taught by a woman who originally came from India or even if you let all that go, even if it was packaged in such a way that it was assimilable for every culture 
people don't want light. They have an allergy to light because that means they'll have to deal with all the choices that they are making and it's and their consciousness has fallen asleep and they are numb and they have no guilt and no shame at this point you know the the healthy shame mm-hmm. and so it's all shut off within them and they're operating at a very selfish level and here you take these wisdom drops if they're going to hear hear you and my conversation they'll turn the channel they'd rather not hear this or they'd rather hear the rhetoric from the extreme right media that's going to support their point of view. And so when I came into the world as a feminine teacher from another country, a woman of color in San Francisco Bay Area and I started teaching, I had students pop out and come join me from every part of the world because I teach online. I I have and I have Muslim students, Christian students, Jew students, Hindu students because I'm teaching the universal truth, you know, albeit respectfully from the Hindu scriptures. Mm-hmm. Yes, agreed, but it is universal and it makes them better Jews and better Christians and better parents and better people. However, I don't try too hard now to convert those who want to stay in resistance and darkness. And once again, the Vedas give us an answer. They say we teachers don't have to do it all alone. There is a collective will, a higher will, known as the yugas, the epochs. And this is the epoch of darkness. And here, the the genuine spiritual people are going to find themselves a little bit fragile, vulnerable, and lesser in numbers. So we better all hang together and <laughs> darkness and immorality and the false, the false, the, the, the gossipers and the rumor mongers. And as you can see that the, the falsehood will reign and the real teachers may even be disrespected and the false gurus will be throned and garlanded. But don't worry. It's a cycle mm-hmm. because this is what humanity needs to do. It needs to bleed itself, destroy its environment hurt its own children, think stupidly that I can throw dump waste in a third world and it's not going to come back to me. It's all going to come back full circle. Humanity will go through its own uh, bad stuff, to put it simply, and then there will be a new epoch, the epoch of light. So we will all progress. The job of people like you and me and others like us is to just keep that one candle on you know, like the prodigal son will return or something like that. Mm-hmm. We just keep that vigil. We do, we should not get sucked into the darkness. We should not start behaving like them and get seduced into that. <laughs> and so a lot of my work remains, goes into being who I am and remaining who I am, authentic, truthful, yeah. dependable, simple, real. And that's all I want to be. And sovereign self We'll find it's already, you know, it's doing well, even in its pre-order phase. But I know that my work has found seekers from across culture and national lines. And I'm sure you found listeners across the world because they find a way to find you. There's so much thirst, but there's so much deception and self, self-deception going on at a collective level. It would be foolish to try and scramble through all of that and make a difference. So sometimes at the end of the day, Richard, I just have to step back into a witnessing mode and say, oh, well, the world's falling apart. It's getting crazy. I'm just going to chant. I'm going to deep breathe, go to pray for everyone and go to bed and wake up the next day. 
I do the same thing I do, talk mm. about the sovereign self. Acharya Yashuna is my guest, and she's the author of Sovereign Self, as she just uh, stated. Again, it is uh, claim your inner joy and freedom with the empowering wisdom of the Upanishads, the Vedas, and the Bhagavad Gita. And uh, this is an extraordinary opportunity for you uh, to uh, to find out more. Uh, we're not asking you to change your philosophy in any way, shape, or form. More than, more importantly, we're actually asking you to add to it. Uh, is it's important, isn't it, uh, uh, Acharya, to to do a sort of a, a house cleaning of one's philosophy, of one's belief system? And by the way, one of my guests refers to uh, belief systems as BS, because <laughs> that's a lot of that keeps us trapped, keeps us stuck. But sometimes, isn't it not? Is it not important for us to spend some time, sort of um, uh, opening the file drawer? Okay, of our philosophy and kind of going through it and seeing if there's anything there that just doesn't fit anymore. It's not serving me anymore. And, you know, in my, and I'm going to use the euphemism and putting it through the shredder, as I do with uh, stuff in my file cabinet. Um, and then it, it actually uh, doesn't leave a vacuum. It makes room for those things that serve me now. Oh, absolutely, and you and I like that. You, I like BS. That's a good one. Belief systems. Um, there are some. I think there is beliefs, and then there is a knowingness, mm. and the knowingness is what we're all born with. But except it gets cluttered and concealed by the conditioning and the society and the gossip and the rumors and the fears that we, you know, absorb from our caregivers and. Um, you know, their state of BS and all of that. So um, I think that's what's called as the, the jnana yoga or the path of knowledge. So yoga is not just postures, physical postures and making your mind empty. There are different types of yoga. And one of them is, is known as the yoga of contemplation. And in the yoga of contemplation, we we listen to something like the Vedas or we read them, which says, you are not what you believe. You're not what you think. You're, you know, so it really helps you go into this deeper awareness. So if our beliefs and our thoughts are like clouds, you may be just the vast sky through which the clouds are passing. And these clouds can be dense enough to cover the light of the inner sun. And you may feel like it's dark and you're depressed and you're unworthy, but the reality is that they are just clouds. And as, like you said, you have this practice of taking them through the shredder. So if we had this regular contemplative practice of, you know, looking at our deep held beliefs and saying, is that really true? You know, mm -hmm. do I really have to do this? And one of my beliefs was I grew up as a spiritual teacher, but I grew up in a pretty patriarchal culture. Vedas don't talk about patriarchy, they talk about equal women's rights, and they talk about women leading war and riding ships and being spiritual teachers. But then gradually, after a lot of invasions and cultural changes, India too became kind of regressive. Mm. So I had some patriarchal beliefs in me, you know, that I should do this because I'm a woman. But I gradually let go of should'ves, could'ves and would'ves. I do things uh, because I want to do them as a soul, not because of my gender or the body I live in, you yeah. know. So that's really helpful. So I had to let that go. And I did that in my 30s. 
And but until 30, that belief was kind of holding me. And that was the ceiling of my reality, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Even though I had the Vedas, so I had all that knowledge, but the Vedas then made me question. So I talk about, you know, four types of thoughts, self-pity, self-pitying beliefs, angry beliefs. Then I talk about clarifying ideas. Then I talk about beliefs that make us valuable. So I had a new belief and I call it, I am enough. That's a belief. Mm -hmm. I'm enough unto myself. Mm -hmm. So I have an organization. I have a couple of organizations. I have people who help me do things. And at the end of the day, I know I'm enough. And that really helps me feel free. So it's a new belief. Society didn't give it to me. I made it my own and I remember it every day. I'm enough. So even if I'm about to drink too much caffeine, I think I'm enough. And then I don't need that extra cup mm -hmm. to make me high because I'm high unto myself. <laughs> so that's that's kind of enough. So I totally agree with you. And sovereign self, a big part of it is to be sovereign because we already are sovereign. We don't have to become sovereign. Mm -hmm. We already are that amazing sun. We just have to let go of that clutter of beliefs keep a few or new ones from the Vedas or other mystical traditions we study that serve us and presto, you know, it's never too late to be who you were meant to be, lead the life you were meant to lead. And I'm liking it, Richard. I'm liking it. Look, and I teach the same. How do we, and I, 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 I um, in my conversations with another guest on my program, Greg Braden, and his book was called uh, the, um, the healing power of belief. He told us that, um, there will come a day when we, and this is probably more of an individualist, uh, an individual experience. There will come a day when we will no longer believe. We will just know. And you referred to that knowingness. How do we, from these ancient wisdom teachings, how do we make that transition from a belief that does serve us? Uh, for example, my belief and my knowing is that my life has meaning. What is, is there a, 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 a process? I don't want to say are there three or four or five steps per se, but is there anything in these writings that speaks to that transition from a belief to making it a knowing? I know that I know that I know that my life has meaning, that this world is not an accident, and that when I die, when the physical body dies, it's just lights out. Because in my intellect, I say, that doesn't make any sense. We have all of these experiences. We experience all of these emotions. We connect with all of these other human beings for whatever the reasons are that we don't fully understand yet. It doesn't make any sense that this would all be just an accident and when it's all over, it's just darkness. Um, I made that leap, but I'm not sure how I did that. Can you speak to that at all to help people to to say, look, there's, the, there's something I'm not going to share with anybody else because I don't want to get ridiculed and what have you. But this is something that I just know that I know that I know deep down in my core. You know, you've, you've touched a core question, and this was a question that the Vedas asked. We can tell you nice things about yourself, but we're just telling you. And how does the Veda become your own knowingness? And in fact, it's that's why I love the Vedas. They talk about pundits 
coding the Vedas without living the Vedas, living even one word of the Vedas, but just coding the Vedas. So we were, so to say, memorize the new beliefs mm-hmm. that I'm an amazing self, I'm a powerful being, I'm a blissful being, and chant it in Sanskrit, sound really fun, but you're just carrying the burden of the books, but you are not really living it. Yeah. So the Vedas suggested uh, a three-point journey. One is called, and I'm going to just throw in the Sanskrit, which means you listen or read the Vedas. So you, you know, assimilate it, take it in through your senses. And that's a very superficial level. And it feels nice to know that, you know what, you're complete unto yourself, your relationship with other people. For example, the Veda says your relationship with other people and other things may give you pleasure but it is secondary. There is a third treasure that lies inside you, which is your own self. Discover that, make a primary relationship with your true being, which is invisible, but it is immortal, eternal, all-pervading, beautiful, powerful, and complete unto itself. It doesn't borrow power from others. So it says all these things and you feel really good listening or reading it, which is going to happen when people read my book or listen to my teachings. But then they say, now begins your journey. It's not the end of your journey. A lot of the people end their journey here and they go from teacher to teacher trying to pick these beliefs and try to make them their own, but they don't stick. And the reason they don't stick is, says Veda says, say you heard your teacher, now it may take you up to 10 years almost, 10 to 12 years to contemplate those teachings. Wait a minute, I'm begging for my boyfriend to call me, but I had listened that I'm enough unto myself and I don't need to beg for morsels of affection. Can I touch myself in my heart? Can I chant all while breathing from my belly? Can I, you know, so there are these teachings and practices and before long, suddenly you feel aware and expanded and it doesn't matter whether the boyfriend called or not. And the next day when he does call, you're kind of feeling a little more distant and you don't really care. Not cold, not bitter, just a little emotionally, healthily distant from that clinging, grasping person. So this is called contemplation. And the third is when you act from it, when you actually don't pick up the phone and leave him desperate messages, (laughs) that is a third stage where you're practicing it. So imbibing it through the senses, contemplating in your private practice, what does this mean? If I use this belief with my mother-in-law, what does it mean? If I use this belief with my boss, what does it mean that I am enough? I've heard this. It sounds like a fun thing, but what does it mean? Similarly, there's another belief that the Vedas say, yad bhavam tad bhavati, you become what you believe. It's become a big thing now in the Western world, but it comes from the Upanishads. When I started using it, I used to have pain in my body. And I started like questioning that and questioning that pain till I became pain free. So you actually contemplate it, change it. And then what happens is the Veda says the final thing. It says that if through this practice you become more and more intellectually heavy, not quieter, calmer, peaceful and spontaneous and childlike, then you are going into the wordy version of the tradition. Words, 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 chance, 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 practice, 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 accumulate a whole PhD on the Vedas. <laughs> Whereas you should become simpler, quieter. And so the let the Vedas be the boat. And at some point, get off the boat and you shall not drown. Mm-hmm. And that's a beautiful teaching of the Vedas. So the Vedas say that people who carry the Vedas on their head are stupid. 
<laughs> they should the veda should be revealed in the heart and that's why teachers like me don't teach a lot we teach simple things that become part of your living litany you know of yeah. of of tools yeah yeah I interviewed a Christian musician uh, probably 25, 30 years ago while I was working for the station at the time, that Christian station. And and uh, we were chatting away, and a uh, beautiful voice this gentleman has, and, and lots of great music that he put out, even when I was listening to it then. And, and he had written a book, and so I was talking to him about this, and he was living in New England at the time. And he got to sharing this particular story with me of how he grew up in the Jesus movement of the 70s. Well, there he was in New England. He says, one day I was looking out the window. It was fall. The leaves were turning and falling off the trees. And this question came to him. And this question that he shared with me gave me hope for the future, that not every single quote-unquote believer, Bible-believing Christian, was stuck, that they were actually thinking, using that wonderful mind that the Creator had given them. And he says, I began to ask this question. Is what I believe, what I was told and taught to believe, or is it what I choose to believe? In other words, finding those things that serve him in his belief system. Now, I, I, when he said that, I'm going, wow. That, to me, is profound, especially coming from somebody who has a particular, um, shall we say, vested interest in this particular faith or philosophy. And here he is asking this question. And the more I interviewed more people who were of that philosophy, who were questioning where they were and where they're going and who they are, Again, it continued to give me hope for the future, and I still have that to this day. I even shared with my eldest sister one day that my beliefs of yesterday are not my beliefs of today, are not my beliefs of tomorrow, because I'm still alive. I'm still growing. I'm still learning and experiencing. I have to wonder, um, uh, Acharya, if you have come across people who are... They aren't lost. They aren't necessarily stuck, but they are the ones searching and maybe not searching for a guru. They're not looking for an individual, a personality. They're looking for that intangible that will help them to get through maybe this crisis that we're experiencing, uh, maybe a struggle in a relationship, maybe financial distress, whatever it is. Uh, and and they're they're not necessarily looking for solutions to those specific outer things, but they're looking for a way inside to put it into proper perspective. Do you run across people like that a lot? Can you reframe your question? I'm almost there, but I want to just. I think um, that that there are people who they get. It's kind of what you said earlier. They get caught up in the outer world's chaos or the outer world's turmoil or the outer world's um, dynamic activity. 
whether it be protests or uh, on social media. I had an instance, for example, where uh, I went on LinkedIn, which is designed for people to make connections and find I find many of my guests on on this. Yes. And um, so this uh, this individual had posted uh, a lot of what I consider to be false information about the virus and the pandemic, to which I responded to them uh, in the text, a very brief one. I said, then tell that to the over 310,000 dead and uh, sick and uh, dying in the ICUs and hospitals, to which they said, don't, uh, hey, hey, you're not going to guilt me into changing my beliefs. Another one said, go read a book, you sheep. To which I then reported them to LinkedIn and they were banned because I didn't feel that that kind of information and conversation was appropriate for that website. You want to do that? Go to Facebook. You want to do that? Go to Instagram. Um, in any event, uh, they are they are they're they're stuck in their own ego, and the information is like what you talked about earlier in the pr- in the in the program uh, about being about listening to only those things that support where they are. In their ego self. Uh, But there have to also be people who have been sort of stuck in that. But now they're finding that where they've been has just been it's it's been exhausting. Uh, It's been trying. It's it's been all of the things they really inside. They really don't they don't want to be. They want to be somewhere else that is more peaceful. Uh, a calmer place. And obviously uh, we, we talked about going within, but when you come across people like this who are searching, and again, as I said, not for a guru, not necessarily for a practice or a mantra, you know, or a chant or what have you, uh, but they're, they're looking for that. How do you help them in that regard to to facilitate their search, you don't give them the answers because they really have to find the answers themselves, right? But you give them a direction. And I know that the, the, the Vedas, the Upanishads, the Gita are certainly good places to go. But how do you, how do you initially help someone in that, in that space of searching, but they just haven't found it yet? And you want to facilitate and help them in their search to find what they need that will serve their inner life. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, totally. It makes sense now. And uh, um, as you were speaking, that's, that would be very enlightening to the listeners too. And many people would identify with that. So there are one, I want to say, there are many, many genuine people who are really trying, who are in some kind of inner quest. And like you said, they don't know what they're looking for, but they know it's not in what they were looking until now. They know that their completion does not lie in one more job, one more project, one more paycheck, one more. They need something more. And so they come to teachers like me or they pick up my books and my blogs and things. But I have to say two things. One is that the nature of the world is so insidious that say they came to some of my spiritual discourses or I led them through a guided meditation or I taught them some breathing, they feel better. And then the very next moment, they want to go and talk about it on social media or WhatsApp or, you know, they get sucked right back into the world they came in. And some even come back and tell me to franchise what I'm doing and, you know, and become my business advisor. So the world becomes... uh, you know, there's a way of spiritual business, which is done with ethics and with a plan. And the other is just 
win the world, you know. And so they they bring their over busy minds into my domain and clutter it. And so I have to clean that out and I have to be the leader of that space and say, here, we're, the, we're not fighting with the world, but we are trying to find the inner world. So, you know, let's take that break. Number two, what has really helped is, and I, and I have shared few things in the book too, uh, a lot of people today nowadays, we talked about the dark epoch, the Kali Yuga, they live from one part of the forehead to the other, they live in the brain. They don't live in the rest of the body. They, they, the body just kind of drags along. And so um, some somatic breathing, touching your touch, putting both your hands at your heart, putting your hands in mudras, which means holding your fingers in certain specific positions. Um, uh, if people look up mudra, and putting your hands in a certain meditative contemplative position and deep breathing and just remembering one thing that I am not the body that I witness. I'm not the breath that I witness. I'm not thought that I witness. I'm only the witness alone. I'm spirit. Just these words repetitive brings people back. But as a spiritual teacher in the 21st century, I have to say that, uh, People are distracted. Even the most sincere students get pulled into dilemmas of the world. And, and even I find that sometimes I'm anxious about the election results, but then I have greater tools to not be anxious. Whereas suddenly I will find that my students are all anxious and jittery. And then I'm like, you know what? Let's use this situation to talk about the pull of the world. And in summary, I would say the Vedas talk about, and I go into details in my book on three kinds of uh, unconscious cravings or obsessions or behaviors known as vasana. It's a Sanskrit word, but vasana is like a, a desire without a head. We just want it. Mm -hmm. We don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know how much. And so one kind is known as body vasana. So then when we are stuck with body vasana, we want more sex, more clothes for the body. We want not one single pimple, not one freckle. We, we, we freak out or panic if something happens to the body. And we even follow the guru, not with wisdom, but maximum number of bodies following that guru this is my guru. So you might have met those people. They're all into the body, 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 body. And when you meet such gurus who have body vasana, they even touch you enlightened by just having quick sex with them. <laughs> body to body mm -hmm. enlightenment, you know, body vasana. And unfortunately, the world is full of body vasana, the most frequent kind. It's like a crazy desire that knows no end. And then there is the world vasana, in this, even if we overcome our bodily obsession, we get obsessed with making it in the world, you know, mm. having other people think better of us, being better than the Genesis next door, you know, somehow, unless some people approve of us, we don't approve of ourselves. So we outsource all our well-being to the world. And the world includes our family, our relatives, our culture, our community, our pastor, our pundit, our religion. And so we almost have no existence without the body. And there's this 
constant desire, this relentless desire to be known, you know, mm-hmm. and it's it's too much. People can't get off that roller coaster. Yeah. And the third vasana is the most tragic, Richard, and you being in this field may have met many <clears throat> and we've all been bitten by it. All spiritual teachers have to go through it. And it's a spiritual vasana. And in this, we start accumulating spiritual books, spiritual teachers, spiritual beliefs, spiritual practices, as if more the better, without taking one deep breath and saying, whoa, no knowingness is better than accumulation. Yeah. What do I know? Maybe I don't need to know anything. Maybe I just need to be quiet like the breath that's coming in and out without trying to make a statement. And I lived in that world. I'm going to be honest to say that's how we all begin. Mm-hmm. We think that if I wear this mala and if I put a tilak, Hindus think like that. Christians <laughs> think I'll wear a big cross. <laughs> Buddhists think we're just going to become bald and that's going to enlighten us. None of it does. These are all bodily traits. Yeah. Ultimately, when the inner noise becomes quiet, the clamoring calms down and the sense of self becomes quietly awake in the middle of opposing tension fields, then you know you've made it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that's all I can say. And I talk about it in my book. It's kind of wisdom. It gives us insights. And the book is entitled Sovereign Self. We encourage you to get a copy. We're going to give you the website here in just a moment. Uh, you make me think of one uh, individual in history uh, who basically was searching and searching and searching for enlightenment and just couldn't find it anywhere. Finally was exhausted and sat down under a tree and it came to him. And uh, his name, uh, his original name was Siddhartha. We have a cat we named Siddhartha, short for Sid. We call him Sid for short. Anything but a Buddha, because <laughs> he is always seeking specifically my attention. My wife says that uh, uh, she has her favorite animals, as I do, but some of our animals, our cats and dog and chickens, have their favorite human. And Sid apparently has made me his favorite human. <laughs> and that's fine. That's good. Uh, but that seems to be the way that it happens, isn't it? That uh, and, and I will use one final analogy, and that is uh, when I was uh, looking for a girlfriend, wanting to have a relationship with someone. And this was in my teens and early 20s. And uh, I can't remember if it was one of my sisters or another friend, female friend of mine who was uh, kind of mentoring me of sorts. She says, you're never going to find one because women can smell desperation. And I, she says, and I can smell it all over you. You're desperate. You need to let it go and just wait uh, and, uh, and so forth. So sometimes that's what we have to do. And patience is not one of our virtues. Um, and, and that's one of the things that uh, I'm hoping that uh, we, can, uh, we can inculcate into our beings. I wanted to ask you one final question in regards to not just your, uh, the book Sovereign Self, but also... Uh, having to do, you, you've referred to the language many times, uh, Sanskrit. Uh, I was told that, there's a, there, that, that the schools in the UK 
are teaching Sanskrit, not for the purposes of resurrecting the language, but that the, the, the language itself, just by virtue of studying it and learning it, it's changing the pathways, the synapses, the neural net, if you will, of the brain. And it expands one's understanding and awareness, maybe even one's consciousness. Are you familiar with that aspect of Sanskrit? Now, that's very true. Sanskrit is not a language that just grew in India like an original language that people, the native people were speaking. Sanskrit is a, Sanskrit literally means the cultured designed language. It was designed for mind vibrations. And in the Vedas or yoga, there are three kinds of mental vibrations. The vibrations that make you dull and kind of a little stupid you know, stupid to like self hurt your own self mm -hmm. and make take wrong decisions. There are other kinds of vibrations that make you aggressive and irresponsible. And um, you may hurt other people, maybe protect yourself, but hurt other people. And there is a third kind of vibration known as the sattvic vibration, which makes you valuable to yourself, to the planet, to all beings. It makes you intelligent, focused, successful, rich, beautiful, healthy, peaceful, enlightened. And that vibration is what every word of Sanskrit commands. There is not a single word in Sanskrit designed in such a way that's going to turn you towards the other two. That's why when you listen to the Sanskrit chants or you hear someone say it, or you learn to read and write it, it changes your neural network. That those experiments are being done worldwide and bravo to those UK policy makers who went beyond culture to look at Sanskrit. And because it's such a designed and intelligent language, the Forbes magazine, as early as the 1990s, had declared that Sanskrit is the easiest language for computers to use and learn. So it's, it's, it's an amazing language and worth looking into for anybody. That is extraordinary. Uh, that, that is even more information than I had about the language. Mm -hmm. uh, it is a beautiful looking language. I mean, just to look at the characters, I have no clue what they are, but <laughs> uh, one of the aspects of and Indian... You, it's not like all Indian languages have that, just Sanskrit. Just, just Sanskrit, Sanskrit, right. But there is, there is within, uh, within uh, uh, the Indian music, for example... Uh, not pe not a lot of people are familiar with this, and it's interesting that uh, uh, the British rock group, the Beatles, uh, who went to India, incorporated some of the aspects of Indian music, and specifically what are re what's referred to as the ragas, into their music. Uh, it's one of those aspects that I find interesting in the West. What do I know about uh, music? I know that there are eight notes. And there are eight octaves of those eight notes, and then there are sharps and flats and, and all those kinds of things, majors and minors and what have you. Uh, but in, in Indian music, for, for example, there aren't just eight notes, you know, and it's, it's just incredible how it's, it's, been, it's been defined there aren't just eight notes. There, there are. I don't know. I don't know how many there are within the context of Indian music and the ragas, uh, but it's it's incredible. And of course, I've listened to a lot of it, uh, whether it be on the sitar and so forth, or people singing. Uh, to me, it's it's remarkable that 
there's that level of, uh, what shall I say, detail within the context of Indian music. Do you yeah. find that, uh, that the Indian music has been influenced by Sanskrit? Because oh, absolutely. Okay. And in fact, there, we talked about the Vedas in the beginning of the show. My teachings are based on Vedas. There is an entire Veda on music called the Sama Veda, and it gives the original notes, which are based on nine core sounds. And then the ragas that you talked about are not just compositions, but these compositions can turn on and off feelings. So they can turn on erotica or um, um, awakeness in the mind, or they induce sleep. And then there are ragas that bring about rainfall, so we remember, I remember in California, we were sitting around this Vedic teacher and he was chanting a raga for rain. And I remember I and my 12 students from California were sitting and it started raining. Then he chanted for sunshine and the sun came out and I'm like, is this, I mean, because I'm not a singer, but <laughs> I witnessed a master chant those ragas and it creates a mini climate of vibrations it doesn't change the season or anything right. but it'll create this mini climate because everything is vibration at yeah. the end and it pulled in it pulled in the moisture and and so that's a whole different i need a whole new lifetime to explore that Richard. <laughs> I was talking with a Chumash Indian here in Santa Barbara County. Uh, uh, he is very much involved in the the medicine of uh, of the of the uh, tribe of the Chumash Indians, and we were talking about medicine. And I was talking to him about you know rain dances and things of this nature. And he says, "Well, yes, that is true. That is real." But what people do not understand, and and of course, I think this is a little different than what you're talking about. He says. When you do, when you use the medicine in that way, let's say you haven't had rain for a long time and you do the dance or you play the music to generate rain in a given area, there's always a price to pay. It's, it's balance. It's balance. If you, take, if you take rain to your area, you are now taking it away from another. And uh, so you have, to, you have to be aware that there is a balancing in the universe. Uh, and, and there's a price to pay, so to speak. So when we start, when we first moved to Santa Barbara and we started experiencing the fires, um, you know, over the course of five or six or eight or 10 years, and I forget how many, maybe it's 12. We've been, we've been through 13 or 14 fires here, uh, where we live. Um, I said, you know what, this too shall pass. This is like you've talked earlier. This is a cycle. This is just, that's what it is. And, uh, you know, we'll get our turn at rain and cooler weather and so forth. And I still believe that very strongly. Um, and it's one of the reasons why when people start talking about, for example, climate change, I say, forget the science. Put the science aside. How about we just clean up our home? Could we just do that? Forget the climate change thing. Could we just clean up our home? Let's do that. Let's just let's just focus on that. Let's not get into arguments about whether the science is or isn't. Just uh, just do your thing. Ancharya, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Ancharya Shunya uh, is my guest, and she's been with us talking about a, a bunch of other things other than just sovereign self. Uh, claim your inner joy and freedom with the 
empowering wisdom of the Vedas, Upanishads, and the Bhagavad Gita. Yes, I have my copy right here, folks, and I hope you get yours as well. Tell us where we can go to get the information that uh, will help us, that will serve us, that will guide us. My website's name is awakenedself.com. It's easy to remember, awakenedself.com. And uh, uh, listeners who are inspired to know more about my book or my classes or just a bunch of free gifts in terms of knowledge on the website and check it out. And thank you for having me, Richard. It's so much fun to talk to you every time. Really appreciate it. Well, you're a you're a fountainhead of knowledge and insights. Well, thank you very much. Awakenself.com is the website. We will be linked to your website. Uh, Acharya Shunya, I want to thank you again for joining us on the program. I have three final questions that I like to ask all of my guests. You may have addressed it a little bit during the program, and uh, since the last time you were on the program, the answers might have changed. Uh, but first, I want to remind our listeners, uh, first, go to awakenself.com to find out more about our guest and the work she's doing, as well as self, uh, sovereign, self dot, uh, sovereign Self, which is the title of the book. We also want to let you know that we're here Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., streaming live at those times at richarddugan.com. Podcasts are on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, and other locations that you folks are, gr I'm grateful for this, reposting our interviews, too. Thank you for doing that. We're also also on YouTube, you can watch the interview that we have uh, done with uh, with Acharya, and uh, we hope that you will do that. And subscribe. Please do so. If you like what we're doing, you like the guests we're bringing, and you'd like to support us financially, i got to tell you, we would be so grateful if you would do that, and I am grateful to those who have and those who will support us. We have a PayPal account for your security as well as ours. We also encourage you to participate in the decade of Perfect Vision, the 2020s, and uh, go within, spend that time. Uh, we've talked about it throughout this entire program. I hope that you will start with five minutes, three minutes, any time is all, at all. Even if you, why, eyes wide open, just sitting out, maybe staring at a tree. Doesn't matter how you start it. Because as Teresa of Avila said, God is amongst the pots and the pans, as well as the trees and the shrubs and the animals and the gravel and all of that good stuff. So just just take the time to do that. So I hope that you will, uh, I hope that you will avail yourself of the time. And of course, as we always do at the end of our program, we ask these three final questions. And again, my thanks to you for joining us. The first of the three is, who is Acharya Shunya? A true being who is having fun as a woman, a mother, a teacher. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you're doing now? I have achieved everything I want. I am sharing the fruit of what I have discovered inside myself through my book and my teachings. And it's a lot of joy and playfulness for sure. And finally... What is your life's purpose? My life's purpose is to find the source of life, which I feel very close to now inside me, which is my true self. My life's purpose was to go beyond ordinary life and lead an extraordinary inner life. And that's what I'm doing. Mm. 
Well, Asharya Chunya, thank you again for joining us here on the program. All the way from India, uh, I do extend namaste to you, and I look forward to having you back on the program to talk more about this and the other works that you are doing. Uh, and uh, again, I just encourage people to go to your website, awakenself.com. Thank you. I thank you for listening and watching, if you're watching on YouTube. Tell me your story, new paradigms for a new world. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to lol. <laughs>